This installment of Beethoven on Friday was recorded for release on August 27th, 2021. Greetings. My name is Terry Noel Tao, and today on Beethoven on Friday, we are going to continue the commemoration of the 103rd anniversary of the birth of Leonard Bernstein, who was born on August 25th, 2018, that we began on Bach on Wednesday, two days ago. However, before we turn our attention to Maestro Bernstein, I have to do something to mark the 500th anniversary of the death of one of the truly great composers, and certainly one of the greatest composers of the late medieval and early Renaissance periods. I speak of Josquin Desprez, who was born sometime between 1440 and 1455, but who died, solidly retired, on August 27, 1521. One of his most famous compositions is the so-called Missa L'Homme Armé in six voices. This composition was called the Missa L'Homme Armé because the Cantus Firmus is a popular tune of the time. This was a standard technique. In this performance, the ensembles Maîtrise des Pays de Loire and Assez Voci are directed by Bernard Fabre Carus. The performance begins, by the way, with an antiphon, which was customary at the time. The antiphon is plain chant, Eterna Christi Munera. Josquin Desprez, on the 500th anniversary of his death, the Missa Lomarme a Voci.
on August 27th, 2021, the 500th anniversary of the death of the great late medieval early Renaissance composer Josquin Desprez. His Missa l'homme armé sextitone, preceded by the appropriate antiphon for the day. You heard the ensemble Assez Voci and La Maîtrise des Pays de Loire, prepared by Bertrand Lemaire, all under the direction of Bernard Fabre Garus. What a wonderful piece of music. What a great composer. And if you are not familiar with his music and the details of his life, look him up on Wikipedia. There also was a marvelous article recently about Josquin in the New Yorker magazine. I'm sure it's available at the New Yorker website. However, the New Yorker website is a bit user vicious, so use their search engine to find it. Just search Josquin, J-O-S-Q-U-I-N. Now, back to Beethoven on Friday, officially. As I observed earlier, the day before yesterday, August 20th, 2021, was the 103rd anniversary of the birth of the amazing Leonard Bernstein. He was born on August 25th, 1918. Conductor, composer, keyboard player, teacher par excellence, humanitarian. Today, obviously, we are going to focus on Leonard Bernstein as an interpreter and proselytizer for the music of Ludwig van Beethoven. You will hear him as conductor. You also will hear him as a pianist playing Beethoven. But first, we are going to listen to his wonderful explanation of how the Symphony Number no. 3 in E-flat major Opus 55, the Eroica Symphony, came to be. The title of this disquisition is How a Great Symphony Was Written. Simplicity itself made manifest. This theme is a statement a bare fact. Beethoven always started with a fact, an axiom, and his art consists in examining that fact with so universal a range of vision that the axiom becomes living experience. We've seen something of this in our discussion of his fifth symphony, but the Eroica symphony is perhaps the supreme example of that universality, especially in this first movement where we are face to face with the great mystery of Beethoven's dialectic the wedding of simplicity and complexity. 
We begin at the beginning with those two whiplashes of sound that shatter the elegant formality of the 18th century. And what are these two chords, so commanding and brave? Simple triads in E-flat major. Now the physical laws of music are so constituted that triads turn out to be the chords on which our classical Western music has come to be based. All primitive wind instruments, for example, automatically produce the notes of the triad that evolve out of the fundamental note of the instrument. That's how bugle calls were born. If a bugle is built so that its fundamental note is E-flat, then by maneuvering his lips, the bugler can produce the overtones of that E-flat, and they will complete the triad. As you see, there are only three different notes, but they go on repeating in order as the player goes higher, so that out of these three different notes can come reveille and taps and mess call and all the others. And out of that same simple triad come the opening two chords of the Eroica, as well as the arresting first statement. Which brings us back to the basic materials of music. Beethoven has taken a triad, a series of notes that couldn't be more basic, and made from it a theme which perhaps by itself is not what one might call a great melody. It is only the fact, the bugle call fact, out of which Beethoven is going to create his complex superstructure. Now how does he do it? by taking this extremely simple musical material and enlivening it, making it grow, complicating it in oddly new ways with constant surprises and twists and unexpected discoveries about it. It is this element of the unexpected that is so often associated with Beethoven. But surprise alone is not enough. What makes his music so great is that no matter how shocking and unexpected the surprise may be, it always somehow gives the impression, as soon as it has happened, that it is the only thing that could have happened at that moment. This is the extraordinary thing we learned from his Fifth Symphony. Inevitability is the keynote. It's as though Beethoven had an inside track to truth and rightness, so that he could say the most amazing and sudden things with complete authority and cogency. The first surprise in the Eroica comes immediately after the theme has been stated. That is certainly the last note one could have expected here, but it is the note that throws the first fresh ray of light on the basic material of the preceding two bars. It is a wrench, an arbitrary, unprepared departure out of the home ground of the theme. Now what has been accomplished? We've been given the premise of the whole work, struggle. Before eight seconds of music have passed, we have already been involved in a conflict. There has been a stab of intrusive otherness, almost of pain. And then we have struggled back to normal within the next eight seconds. But we now know what we are in for. This first movement is going to be a battle. Now Beethoven goes on to expand on his triad theme. Thank you. 
what new shocks have we had now? Rhythmic ones. Again, Beethoven is finding new meanings in his basic material, this time in his meter. The whole movement goes in rapid groups of three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and so on, and the basic stress is naturally on one, one, two, three, one, two, three, like a waltz. But now we are suddenly hit by displaced accents, a kind of syncopation, which makes the music go one, two, three, one, two, three, instead of the normal one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. One, two, three, one, two, three, one. Then he goes on and does it even more elaborately. One, two, three, 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 one, two, three. Each displaced accent is a shock, but all the shocks add up to an impetus that is pure Beethoven, exciting, new, and powerful, and all through a simple variation on the way of looking at one, two, three. This syncopated passage leads to a statement of the theme by the full orchestra. now ready to leave this home ground to seek new material, new keys, and new subjects. What ordinarily happens at this point in the first movement of a classical symphony is that we embark on a transition section which will lead us to our second main theme in a new contrasting key. But Beethoven, the gigantic one, presents us with no less than three potent transition subjects, each one of which is meaningful enough to be called a theme in itself. And only then do we reach the second theme proper. This triple transition begins with a lyrical motive. The second element in the section burgeons out of the first, returning upwards the descending scale that fed into it. Now the third element. Remember, we are still in the transition between themes one and two. finally ready for the tender, yearning second theme. Why did he need all those transitions? Well, let's experiment for a moment and see how the music would have flowed if only the first transition had been used. Actually, as you will see, it works perfectly well to leave out transitions two and three. The key progression is right, even the orchestration works out smoothly. It would sound like this.
Excellent, you say? Yes, but not good enough for Beethoven, because he realized with that divine sensitivity of his that this lyrical transition motive does not set up the still more lyrical second theme. What is needed is a foil for this yearning, a sense of combat, the struggle we spoke of earlier, in order to point up more dramatically the contrasting tenderness to come. And this is well supplied by the agitated third section. So that when the second theme finally does arrive, it seems clothed in a new refreshing glow. But even this contrast is not enough for him. In the second theme itself, the wistful longing character lasts a mere 16 bars when suddenly it stiffens in apprehension like a wild animal that senses danger and bridles. You see how he carries on his sense of battle and conflict. He cannot leave the human condition pat and untouched in this music. There is no status quo. There is always the new danger, the all-too-short relaxation, then again the challenge, and again the riding off to meet it with a great battle cry. elements of freshness are so abundant that it is difficult to choose among them. Take the famous hammer blow chords at the end of the exposition, the so-called barbaric dissonances. Again, Beethoven is dealing with a basic commodity of music, tonic harmonies and dominant harmonies. But he has channeled a new way and built a new sound simply by combining them simultaneously tonic plus dominant, thus giving a sense of pulling and tearing. In the middle of the raging development, having just concluded a staggering passage of blows and wounds, tearing at us with dissonances and displaced accents, Beethoven does a rather special thing. He introduces a brand new theme, now, by the strict rule, the development section should develop themes already stated in the exposition, which it does extensively, but the giant in Beethoven eventually takes over and adds a new, almost elegiac melody, which is like a song of pain after the Holocaust. Again, it turns out that this new material was necessary to serve as a foil for the return of the original heroic theme. Gigantic, yes, everything a little more, a little bigger, a little longer, a little stronger, but not one wasted note. Later on, in the enormous coda that concludes the movement, 
This extra theme again makes its appearance, again in a most unorthodox fashion, making a coda that dwarfs all others in majesty. The study of the Eroica is a lifetime work, and we have only been skimming and over one movement at that. But we have seen something of how Beethoven uses basic, almost infantile musical materials and infuses them with new life, how he makes complexity of simplicity, how he uses the surprise element with that inevitable sense of justness, how his statements always evolve in the large, giant-like. There's hardly a bar in the symphony where these qualities cannot be found. And the better you know this music, the more you will be filled with wonder and gratitude for this great spirit that grappled all its life with the most elemental and stubborn phenomena of human experience. Leonard Bernstein's amazing, brilliant explanation of how the opening movement of Ludwig van Beethoven's Heroica Symphony works. That explanation, that explication de text, to which Leonard Bernstein gave the title How a Great Symphony was written, was recorded on December 20th, 1965. And what fun he and the engineers must have had assembling it all, including the excerpts from his recent recording of the Beethoven Symphony No. 3 in E-flat major, Opus 55, the Eroica, which was recorded in the Manhattan Center in New York City on January 27, 1964. Maestro Bernstein conducts the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra of New York. Now, let us hear Leonard Bernstein conduct the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra of New York in the recording of the Ludwig van Beethoven Symphony No. 3 in E-flat major, Opus 55, the Eroica, from which he extracted the examples that you heard in that amazing talk. The recording was made at the Manhattan Center in New York City on January 27, 1964.
Thank you.
recorded at the Manhattan Center in New York City on January 27, 1964. The Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra of New York, familiarly known as the New York Philharmonic, under the direction of Leonard Bernstein, who was born on August 25th, 1918, 103 years ago, the day before yesterday. Ludwig van Beethoven, the Symphony No. 3 in E-flat major, Opus 55, The Eroica. This next recording is a truly remarkable document. If there ever has been a finer recording of Ludwig van Beethoven's Concerto in C Major for Piano, Violin, Cello, and Orchestra, Opus 56, familiarly known as the Triple Concerto, I have yet to hear it. This performance was recorded for broadcast on October 17, 1959, in concert in Carnegie Hall. John Corigliano, the concertmaster of the orchestra, is the solo violinist. Laszlo Varga, who was the principal cellist of the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra of New York, was the solo cellist. Leonard Bernstein was the pianist, and he conducted from the piano.
recorded in concert in Carnegie Hall in New York City and broadcast on October 17, 1959. Ludwig van Beethoven, the concerto in C major for piano, violin, cello, and orchestra, Opus 56, familiarly known as Beethoven's Triple Concerto. The pianist who conducted from the piano was Leonard Bernstein, who was born on August 25th, 1918. The violinist was the concertmaster of the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra of New York, John Corigliano, and the principal cellist, Laszlo Varga, played the cello part. Of course, they were partnered by the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra of New York. As I said before I played it for you, I know of no finer performance of the Beethoven Triple Concerto than that one. It is a grossly misunderstood work, and as a result, it is denigrated. The performances that come to mind as being in the same league are the performances by Oistrak Konushevsky Oberin, with Sir Malcolm Sargent conducting, and the performance from Marlborough with Rudolf Serkin, Alexander Schneider, and Leslie Parnas. Leonard Bernstein had a marvelous sense of the dramatic and was especially good in quote-unquote dramatic music. I want to share with you two examples of his artistry in conveying to an audience the drama, the meaning of the music of Ludwig van Beethoven. This is a performance that was recorded about 1981 in Vienna, Austria. The Wiener Philharmoniker, the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, is conducted by Maestro Bernstein in this performance of the overture to the incidental music that Beethoven provided for a performance of the play Egmont by Goethe. <laughs>
Leonard Bernstein conducting the Wiener Philharmoniker, the Vienna Philharmonic, in the overture to the incidental music that Ludwig van Beethoven composed for revival of the Goethe play Egmont, his Opus 84, a graphic demonstration of how marvelous Leonard Bernstein was at the performance of dramatic music. He had a sense of drama that few conductors have ever had. Here is another example of that sense of the dramatic. Once again, Leonard Bernstein is conducting the Wiener Philharmoniker, the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. Ludwig van Beethoven, the Leonora Overture Number no. 3, Opus 72b.
If there is a recording of the Leonora Overture Number no. 3, as we call it, Opus 72b by Ludwig van Beethoven, that is more intense, more vibrant than that one, I have yet to hear it. Leonard Bernstein conducting the Wiener Philharmoniker, the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, in a recording that was made in the Grosse Musikvereinsaal in Vienna around 1980. Now an example of what a wonderful partner Leonard Bernstein made for a concerto performance of some kind. Those of you who heard Bach on Wednesday, day before yesterday, when I focused on Leonard Bernstein as an interpreter and advocate of the music of Johann Sebastian Bach already know this. But now I will prove it in a Beethovenian context. This is a recording that was made in the Manhattan Center in New York City in 1962. Yes, May 1st, 1962, to be precise. The Westminster Choir, prepared by Warren Martin, the New York Philharmonic, still then, officially, as it is now, the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra of New York, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. The piano soloist in this marvelous performance is Rudolf Serkin. Ludwig van Beethoven. The Fantasia in C minor for piano, chorus, and orchestra, opus 80, the choral fantasy. Mm -hmm. 
Beethoven, the Fantasia in C minor for piano, vocalists, and orchestra, Opus 80, the choral fantasy, as it is best known. It really is Beethoven's piano concerto number six. I mean, after all, if Ferruccio Busoni could have a chorus in his enormous, wonderful piano concerto, why can't Ludwig van Beethoven? In that wonderful performance, which was recorded in the Manhattan Center in New York City 
on May 1, 1962. You heard the Westminster Choir, prepared by Warren Martin, the Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra of New York, under the direction of Leonard Bernstein, who was born on August 25, 1918. Rudolf Serkin was the piano soloist. <laughs> 